Chapter 28 The Missing Mirror Harry's feet touched road. He saw the achingly familiar Hogsmeade High Street, dark shopfronts, and the outline of black mountains beyond the village, and the curve in the road ahead that led off toward Hogwarts, and lights spilling from the windows of the three broomsticks, and with a lurch of the heart he remembered with piercing accuracy how he had landed here nearly a year before, supporting a desperately weak Dumbledore. All this in a second upon landing, and then, even as he relaxed his grip upon Ron's and Hermione's arms, it happened. The air was rent by a scream that sounded like Voldemort's when he had realized the cup had been stolen. It tore at every nerve in Harry's body, and he knew immediately that their appearance had caused it. Even as he looked at the other two beneath the cloak, the door of the three broomsticks burst open, and a dozen cloaked and hooded Death Eaters dashed into the street, their wands aloft. Harry seized Ron's wrist as he raised his wand. There were too many of them to stun. Even attempting it would give away their position. One of the Death Eaters waved his wand, and the scream stopped, still echoing around the distant mountains. A seal cloak! roared one of the Death Eaters. Harry seized its folds, but it made no attempt to escape. The summoning charm had not worked on it. Not under your wrapper then, Potter, yelled the Death Eater, who had tried the charm, and then to his fellows, Spread out! He's here! Six of the Death Eaters ran toward them. Harry, Ron, and Hermione backed as quickly as possible down the nearest side street, and the Death Eaters missed them by inches. They waited in the darkness, listening to the footsteps running up and down, beams of light flying along the street, from the Death Eaters, searching wands. Let's just leave, Hermione whispered. Disapparate now. Great idea, said Ron. But before Harry could reply, a Death Eater shouted, We know you're here, Potter, and there's no getting away. We'll find you. They were ready for us, whispered Harry. They set up that spell to tell them we'd come. I reckon they've done something to keep us here. Trap us. What about he mentors? called another Death Eater. Let him have free reign. They'd find him quick enough. The Dark Lord wants Potter dead by no hand but his. And the mentors won't kill him. The Dark Lord wants Potter's life, not his soul. He'll be easier to kill if he's been kissed first. There were noises of agreement. Dread filled Harry. To repel Dementors, they would have to produce Patronuses, which would give them away immediately. We're going to have to try to disapparate, Harry, Hermione whispered. Even as she said it, he felt the unnatural cold begin to steal over the street. Light was sucked from the environment right up to the stars, which vanished. In the pitch blackness, he felt Hermione take hold of his arm, and together they turned on the spot. The air through which they needed to move seemed to have become solid. They could not disapparate. The Death Eaters had cast their charms well. The cold was biting deeper and deeper into Harry's flesh. He, Ron, and Hermione retreated down the side street, groping their way along the wall, trying not to make a sound. Then, around the corner, gliding noiselessly, came Dementors, ten or more of them visible because they were of a denser darkness than their surroundings, with their black cloaks and their scabbed and rotting hands. Could they sense fear in the vicinity? Harry was sure of it. 
They seemed to be coming more quickly now, taking those dragging, rattling breaths he detested, tasting despair on the air, closing in. He raised his wand. He could not, would not suffer the Dementor's kiss, whatever happened afterward. It was of Ron and Hermione that he thought as he whispered, Expecto Patronum! The silver stag burst from his wand and charged. The Dementors scattered, and there was a triumphant yell from somewhere out of sight. It's him! Down there! Down there! I saw his Patronus! It was a stag! The Dementors had retreated. The stars were popping out again, and the footsteps of the Death Eaters were becoming louder. But before Harry in his panic could decide what to do, there was a grinding of bolts nearby. A door opened on the left-hand side of the narrow street, and a rough voice said, Potter, in here, quick! He obeyed without hesitation. The three of them hurtled through the open doorway. Upstairs, keep the cloak on, keep quiet, muttered a tall figure, passing them on his way into the street and slamming the door behind him. Harry had had no idea where they were, but now he saw, by the stuttering light of a single candle, the grubby, sawdust-strewn bar of the Hogshead Inn. They ran behind the counter and through a second doorway which led to a rickety wooden staircase that they climbed as fast as they could. The stairs opened onto a sitting room with a threadbare carpet and a small fireplace, above which hung a single large oil painting of a blonde girl who gazed out at the room with a kind of vacant sweetness. Shouts reached them from the street below. Still wearing the invisibility cloak, they crept toward the grimy window and looked down. Their savior, whom Harry now recognized as the Hogshead's barman, was the only person not wearing a hood. So what? He was bellowing into one of the hooded faces. So what? You send the mentors down my street? I'll send the Patronus back at them. I'm not having them near me. I've told you that. I'm not having it. That wasn't your Patronus, said a Death Eater. That was a stag. It was Potter's. Stag? roared the barman, and he pulled out a wand. Stag, you idiot! Expecto Patronum! Something huge and horned erupted from the wand. Head down, it charged toward the high street and out of sight. That's not what I saw, said the Death Eater, though with less certainty. Curfew's been broken. You heard the noise, one of his companions told the barman. Someone was out in the street against regulations. If I want to put my cat out, I will and be damned to your curfew. You set off the caterwauling charm? What if I did? Going to cart me off to Azkaban? Kill me for sticking my nose out my own front door? Do it then, if you want to. But I hope for your sake you haven't pressed your little dark marks and summoned him. He's not going to like being called here for me and my old cat, is he now? Don't you worry about us, said one of the Death Eaters. Worry about yourself, breaking curfew. And where will you lot traffic potions and poisons when my pubs close down? What'll happen to your little sidelines then? Are you threatening? I keep my mouth shut. It's why you come here, isn't it? I still say I saw a stag Patronus, shouted the first Death Eater. Stag? roared the barman. It's a goat! Idiot! All right, we made a mistake, said the second Death Eater. 
Break curfew again, and we won't be so lenient. The Death Eaters strode back toward the high street. Hermione moaned with relief, wove out from under the cloak, and sat down on a wobble-legged chair. Harry drew the curtains tight shut, then pulled the cloak off himself and Ron. They could hear the barman down below, rebolting the door of the bar, then climbing the stairs. Harry's attention was caught by something on the mantelpiece, a small rectangular mirror propped on top of it, right beneath the portrait of the girl. The barman entered the room. You bloody fools, he said gruffly, looking from one to the other of them. What were you thinking, coming here? Thank you, said Harry. We can't thank you enough. You saved our lives. The barman grunted. Harry approached him, looking up into the face, trying to see past the long, stringy, wire-gray hair and beard. He wore spectacles. Behind the dirty lenses, the eyes were a piercing, brilliant blue. It's your eye I've been seeing in the mirror. There was silence in the room. Harry and the barman looked at each other. You sent Dobby? The barman nodded and looked around for the elf. Thought he'd be with you. Where have you left him? He's dead, said Harry. Bellatrix Lestrange killed him. The barman's face was impassive. After a few moments, he said, I'm sorry to hear it. I like that elf. He turned away, lighting lamps with prods of his wand, not looking at any of them. You're Aberforth, said Harry to the man's back. He neither confirmed nor denied it, but bent to light the fire. How did you get this? Harry asked, walking across to Sirius's mirror, the twin of the one he had broken nearly two years before. Bought it from Dung about a year ago, said Aberforth. Albus told me what it was. Been trying to keep an eye out for you. Ron gasped. The silver dough, he said excitedly. Was that you, too? What are you talking about, said Aberforth. Someone sent a dough Patronus to us. Brains like that, you could be a Death Eater, son. Haven't I just proved my Patronus is a goat? Oh, said Ron. Yeah. Well, I'm hungry, he added defensively as his stomach gave an enormous rumble. I got food, said Aberforth, and he sloped out of the room, reappearing moments later with a large loaf of bread, some cheese, and a pewter jug of mead, which he set upon a small table in front of the fire. Ravenous, they ate and drank, and for a while there was silence but for the crackle of the fire, the clink of goblets, and the sound of chewing. Right then, said Aberforth, when they had eaten their fill, and Harry and Ron sat slumped dozily in their chairs. We need to think of the best way to get you out of here. Can't be done by night. You heard what happens if anyone moves outdoors during darkness. Caterwauling charms set off. They'll be on to you like bow truckles on doxy eggs. I don't reckon I'll be able to pass off a stag as a goat a second time. Wait for daybreak when curfew lifts. Then you can put your cloak back on and set out on foot. Get right out of Hogsmeade, up into the mountains, and you'll be able to disapparate there. Might see Hagrid. He's been hiding in a cave up there with Grawp ever since they tried to arrest him. We're not leaving, said Harry. We need to get into Hogwarts. Don't be stupid, boy, said Aberforth. We've got to, said Harry. 
What you've got to do, said Aberforth, leaning forward, is to get as far from here as you can. You don't understand. There isn't much time. We've got to get into the castle. Dumbledore, I mean, your brother, wanted us... The firelight made the grimy lenses of Aberforth's glasses momentarily opaque, a bright, flat white, and Harry remembered the blind eyes of the giant spider, Aragog. My brother Albus wanted a lot of things, said Aberforth, and people had a habit of getting hurt while he was carrying out his grand plans. You get away from this school, Potter, and out of the country if you can. Forget my brother and his clever schemes. He's gone where none of this can hurt him, and you don't owe him anything. You don't understand, said Harry again. Oh, don't I, said Aberforth quietly. You don't think I understood my own brother? Think you knew Albus better than I did? I didn't mean that, said Harry, whose brain felt sluggish with exhaustion and from the surfeit of food and wine. It's... He left me a job. Did he now? said Aberforth. Nice job, I hope. Pleasant, easy. Sort of thing you'd expect an unqualified wizard kid to be able to do without overstretching themselves. Ron gave a rather grim laugh. Hermione was looking strained. It, it's not easy, no, said Harry. But I've got to... Got to? Why got to? He's dead, isn't he? said Aberforth roughly. Let it go, boy, before you follow him. Save yourself. I can't. Why not? I... Harry felt overwhelmed. He could not explain, so he took the offensive instead. But you're fighting, too. You're in the Order of the Phoenix. I was, said Aberforth. The Order of the Phoenix is finished. You know who's won. It's over. And anyone who's pretending difference, kidding themselves. It'll never be safe for you here, Potter. He wants you too badly. So go abroad. Go into hiding. Save yourself. Best take these two with you. He jerked a thumb at Ron and Hermione. They'll be in danger long as they live now everyone knows they've been working with you. I can't leave, said Harry. I've got a job. Give it to someone else. I can't. It's got to be me. Dumbledore explained it all. Oh, did he now? And did he tell you everything? Was he honest with you? Harry wanted with all his heart to say yes. But somehow the simple word would not rise to his lips. Aberforth seemed to know what he was thinking. I knew my brother, Potter. He learned secrecy at our mother's knee. Secrets and lies. That's how we grew up. And Albus, he was a natural. The old man's eyes traveled to the painting of the girl over the mantelpiece. It was, now Harry looked around properly, the only picture in the room. There was no photograph of Albus Dumbledore, nor of anyone else. Mr. Dumbledore, said Hermione rather timidly. Is that your sister? Ariana? Yes, said Aberforth tersely. Been reading Rita Skeeter, have you, Missy? Even by the rosy light of the fire, it was clear that Hermione had turned red. Alpheus Doge mentioned her to us, said Harry, trying to spare Hermione. That old Burke, muttered Aberforth, 
taking another swig of mead. Thought the sun shone out of my brother's every orifice, he did. Well, so did plenty of people, you three included by the looks of it. Harry kept quiet. He did not want to express the doubts and uncertainties about Dumbledore that had riddled him for months now. He had made his choice while he dug Dobby's grave. He had decided to continue along the winding, dangerous path indicated for him by Albus Dumbledore, to accept that he had not been told everything that he wanted to know, but simply to trust. He had no desire to doubt again. He did not want to hear anything that would deflect him from his purpose. He met Aberforth's gaze, which was so strikingly like his brother's. The bright blue eyes gave the same impression that they were X-raying the object of their scrutiny, and Harry thought that Aberforth knew what he was thinking and despised him for it. Professor Dumbledore cared about Harry very much, said Hermione in a low voice. Did he now? said Aberforth. Funny thing, how many of the people my brother cared about very much ended up in a worse state than if he'd left them well alone. What do you mean? asked Hermione breathlessly. Never you mind, said Aberforth. But that's a really serious thing to say, said Hermione. Are you, are you talking about your sister? Aberforth glared at her. His lips moved as if he were chewing the words he was holding back. Then he burst into speech. When my sister was six years old, she was attacked, set upon by three muggle boys. They'd seen her doing magic, spying through the back garden hedge. She was a kid. She couldn't control it. No witch or wizard can at that age. What they saw scared them, I expect. They forced their way through the hedge, and when she couldn't show them the trick, they got a bit carried away trying to stop the little freak doing it. Hermione's eyes were huge in the firelight. Ron looked slightly sick. Aberforth stood up, tall as Albus, and suddenly terrible in his anger and the intensity of his pain. It destroyed her, what they did. She was never right again. She wouldn't use magic, but she couldn't get rid of it. It turned inward and drove her mad. It exploded out of her when she couldn't control it. And at times she was strange and dangerous. But mostly, she was sweet and scared and harmless. Then my father went after the bastards that did it, said Aberforth, and attacked them. And they locked him up in Azkaban for it. He never said why he'd done it. Because if the Ministry had known what Ariana had become, she'd have been locked up in St. Mungo's for good. They'd have seen her as a serious threat to the International Statute of Secrecy, unbalanced like she was, with magic exploding out of her at moments when she couldn't keep it in any longer. We had to keep her safe and quiet. We moved house, put it about she was ill, and my mother looked after her and tried to keep her calm and happy. I was her favorite, he said. And as he said it, a grubby schoolboy seemed to look out through Aberforth's wrinkles and tangled beard. Not Albus. He was always up in his bedroom when he was home, reading his books and counting his prizes, keeping up with his correspondence with the most notable magical names of the day. Aberforth sneered. He didn't want to be bothered with her. She liked me best. I could get her to eat when she wouldn't do it for my mother. I could get her to calm down when she was in one of her rages, and when she was quiet, she used to help me feed the goats. Then, when she was fourteen, see, I wasn't there, said Aberforth. If I'd been 
there I could have calmed her down. She had one of her rages, and my mother wasn't as young as she was. And it was an accident. Ariana couldn't control it. But my mother was killed. Harry felt a horrible mixture of pity and repulsion. He did not want to hear any more, but Aberforth kept talking, and Harry wondered how long it had been since he had spoken about this, whether in fact he had ever spoken about it. So that put paid to Albus's trip around the world with little Doge. The pair of them came home from my mother's funeral, and then Doge went off on his own, and Albus settled down as the head of the family. Ah! Aberforth spat into the fire. I'd have looked after her, I told him so. I didn't care about school. I'd have stayed home and done it. He told me I had to finish my education, and he'd take over from my mother. Bit of a come-down for Mr. Brilliant. There's no prizes for looking after your half-mad sister, stopping her blowing up the house every other day. But he did all right for a few weeks, till he came. And now a positively dangerous look crept over Aberforth's face. Grindelwald. And at last my brother had an equal to talk to. Someone just as bright and talented as he was. And looking after Ariana took a back seat then, while they were hatching all their plans for a new wizarding order, and looking for hallows, and whatever else it was they were so interested in. Grand plans for the benefit of all wizard kind. And if one young girl got neglected, what did that matter when Albus was working for the greater good? But after a few weeks of it, I'd had enough, I had. It was nearly time for me to go back to Hogwarts, so I told them, both of them, face to face, like I am to you now. And Aberforth looked down at Harry, and it took little imagination to see him as a teenager, wiry and angry, confronting his elder brother. I told him, you'd better give it up now. You can't move her, she's in no fit state. You can't take her with you wherever it is you're planning to go when you're making your clever speeches trying to whip yourselves up a following. He didn't like that, said Aberforth, and his eyes were briefly occluded by the firelight on the lenses of his glasses. They shone white and blind again. Grindelwald didn't like that at all. He got angry. He told me what a stupid little boy I was, trying to stand in the way of him and my brilliant brother. Didn't I understand? My poor sister wouldn't have to be hidden once they'd changed the world and led the wizards out of hiding and taught the muggles their place. And there was an argument, and I pulled out my wand and he pulled out his, and I had the Cruciatus curse used on me by my brother's best friend, and Albus was trying to stop him, and then all three of us were dueling, and the flashing lights and the bangs set her off. She couldn't stand it. The color was draining from Aberforth's face as though he had suffered a mortal wound. And I think she wanted to help, but she didn't really know what she was doing, and I don't know which of us did it. It could have been any of us. And she was dead. His voice broke on the last word, and he dropped down into the nearest chair. Hermione's face was wet with tears, and Ron was almost as pale as Aberforth. Harry felt nothing but revulsion. He wished he had not heard it, wished he could wash his mind clean of it. I'm so, I'm so sorry, Hermione whispered. Gone, 
croaked Aberforth. Gone forever. He wiped his nose on his cuff and cleared his throat. Course, Grindelwald scarpered. He had a bit of a track record already, back in his own country, and he didn't want Ariana set to his account, too. And Albus was free, wasn't he? Free of the burden of his sister, free to become the greatest wizard of the... He was never free, said Harry. I beg your pardon, said Aberforth. Never, said Harry. The night that your brother died, he drank a potion that drove him out of his mind. He started screaming, pleading with someone who wasn't there. Don't hurt them, please, hurt me instead. Ron and Hermione were staring at Harry. He had never gone into details about what had happened on the island on the lake. The events that had taken place after he and Dumbledore had returned to Hogwarts had eclipsed it so thoroughly. He thought he was back there with you and Grindelwald. I know he did, said Harry, remembering Dumbledore whimpering, pleading. He thought he was watching Grindelwald hurting you and Ariana. It was torture to him. If you'd seen him then, you wouldn't say he was free. Aberforth seemed lost in contemplation of his own knotted and veined hands. After a long pause, he said, How can you be sure, Potter, that my brother wasn't more interested in the greater good than in you? How can you be sure you aren't dispensable, just like my little sister? A shard of ice seemed to pierce Harry's heart. I don't believe it. Dumbledore loved Harry, said Hermione. Why didn't he tell him to hide then, shot back Aberforth. Why didn't he say to him, take care of yourself, here's how to survive? Because, said Harry before Hermione could answer, sometimes you've got to think about more than your own safety. Sometimes you've got to think about the greater good. This is war. You're seventeen, boy. I'm of age, and I'm going to keep fighting even if you've given up. Who says I've given up? The Order of the Phoenix is finished. Harry repeated, you know who's won, it's over, and anyone who's pretending difference, kidding themselves. I don't say I like it, but it's the truth. No, it isn't, said Harry. Your brother knew how to finish you-know-who, and he passed the knowledge on to me. I'm going to keep going until I succeed, or I die. Don't think I don't know how this might end. I've known it for years. He waited for Aberforth to jeer or to argue, but he did not. He merely scowled. We need to get into Hogwarts, said Harry again. If you can't help us, we'll wait till daybreak, leave you in peace, and try to find a way in ourselves. If you can help us, well, now would be a great time to mention it. Aberforth remained fixed in his chair, gazing at Harry with the eyes that were so extraordinarily like his brother's. At last he cleared his throat, got to his feet, walked around the little table, and approached the portrait of Ariana. You know what to do, he said. She smiled, turned, and walked away. Not as people in portraits usually did, out of the sides of their frames, but along what seemed to be a long tunnel painted behind her. They watched her slight figure retreating, until finally she was swallowed by the darkness. Ah, uh, what? began Ron. There's only one way in now, said Aberforth. You must know they've got all the old secret passageways covered at both ends. Dementors all around the boundary walls, regular patrols inside the school from what my sources tell me. The place has never been so heavily guarded. 
How you expect to do anything once you get inside it, with Snape in charge and the Carrows as his deputies? Well, that's your lookout, isn't it? You say you're prepared to die. But what? said Hermione, frowning at Ariana's picture. A tiny white dot had reappeared at the end of the painted tunnel, and now Ariana was walking back toward them, growing bigger and bigger as she came. But there was somebody else with her now, someone taller than she was, who was limping along, looking excited. His hair was longer than Harry had ever seen it. He appeared to have suffered several gashes to his face, and his clothes were ripped and torn. Larger and larger the two figures grew, until only their heads and shoulders filled the portrait. Then the whole thing swung forward on the wall like a little door, and the entrance to a real tunnel was revealed. And out of it, his hair overgrown, his face cut, his robes ripped, clambered the real Neville Longbottom, who gave a roar of delight, leapt down from the mantelpiece and yelled, I knew you'd come! I knew it, Harry! Chapter 29 The Lost Diadem Neville, what the, how? But Neville had spotted Ron and Hermione, and with yells of delight was hugging them too. The longer Harry looked at Neville, the worse he appeared. One of his eyes was swollen yellow and purple. There were gouge marks on his face, and his general air of unkemptness suggested that he had been living rough. Nevertheless, his battered visage shone with happiness as he let go of Hermione and said again, I knew you'd come. Kept telling Seamus it was a matter of time. Neville, what's happened to you? What? This? Neville dismissed his injuries with a shake of the head. This is nothing. Seamus is worse. You'll see. Shall we get going then? Oh, he turned to Aberforth. Ab, there might be a couple more people on the way. Couple more? repeated Aberforth ominously. What do you mean, a couple more, Longbottom? There's a curfew and a caterwauling charm on the whole village. I know, that's why they'll be apparating directly into the bar, said Neville. Just send them down the passage when they get here, will you? Thanks a lot. Neville held out his hand to Hermione and helped her to climb up onto the mantelpiece and into the tunnel. Ron followed, then Neville. Harry addressed Aberforth. I don't know how to thank you. You've saved our lives twice. Look after them, then, said Aberforth gruffly. I might not be able to save them a third time. Harry clambered up onto the mantelpiece and through the hole behind Ariana's portrait. There were smooth stone steps on the other side. It looked as though the passageway had been there for years. Brass lamps hung from the walls, and the earthy floor was worn and smooth. As they walked, their shadows rippled, fan-like, across the wall. How long has this been here? Ron asked as they set off. It isn't on the Marauder's map, is it, Harry? I thought there were only seven passages in and out of school. They sealed off all of those before the start of the year, said Neville. There's no chance of getting through any of them now. Not with curses over the entrances and Death Eaters and Dementors waiting at the exits. He started walking backward, beaming, drinking them in. Never mind that stuff. Is it true? Did you break into Gringotts? Did you escape on a dragon? It's everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. Terry Boot got beaten up by Caro for yelling about it in the Great Hall at dinner. Yeah, it's true, said Harry. Neville laughed gleefully. What did you do with the dragon? Released it into the wild, said Ron. Hermione was all for keeping it as a pet. 
Don't exaggerate, Ron. But what have you been doing? People have been saying you've just been on the run, Harry. But I don't think so. I think you've been up to something. You're right, said Harry. But tell us about Hogwarts, Neville. We haven't heard anything. It's been... well... It's not really like Hogwarts anymore, said Neville, the smile fading from his face as he spoke. Do you know about the Carrows? Those two Death Eaters who teach here? They do more than teach, said Neville. They're in charge of all discipline. They like punishment, the Carrows. Like Umbridge? Nah, they make her look tame. The other teachers are all supposed to refer us to the Carrows if we do anything wrong. They don't, though, if they can avoid it. You can tell they all hate them as much as we do. Amicus, the bloke, he teaches what used to be defense against the dark arts. Except now, it's just the dark arts. We're supposed to practice the Cruciatus curse on people who've earned detentions. What? Harry, Ron, and Hermione's united voices echoed up and down the passage. Yeah, said Neville. That's how I got this one. He pointed at a particularly deep gash in his cheek. I refuse to do it. Some people are into it, though. Crab and Goyle love it. First time they've ever been top in anything, I expect. Alecto, Amicus's sister, teaches muggle studies, which is compulsory for everyone. We've all got to listen to her explain how muggles are like animals, stupid and dirty, and how they drove wizards into hiding by being vicious toward them, and how the natural order is being re-established. I got this one. He indicated another slash to his face for asking her how much muggle blood she and her brother have got. Blimey, Neville, said Ron. There's a time and a place for getting a smart mouth. You didn't hear her, said Neville. You wouldn't have stood it either. The thing is, it helps when people stand up to them. It gives everyone hope. I used to notice that when you did it, Harry. But they've used you as a knife sharpener, said Ron, wincing slightly as they passed a lamp, and Neville's injuries were thrown into even greater relief. Neville shrugged. Doesn't matter. They don't want to spill too much pure blood, so they'll torture us a bit if we're mouthy, but they won't actually kill us. Harry did not know what was worse, the things that Neville was saying or the matter-of-fact tone in which he said them. The only people in real danger are the ones whose friends and relatives on the outside are giving trouble. They get taken hostage. Old Zeno Lovegood was getting a bit too outspoken in the quibbler, so they dragged Luna off the train on the way back for Christmas. Neville, she's all right. We've seen her. Yeah, I know. She managed to get a message to me. From his pocket, he pulled a golden coin, and Harry recognized it as one of the fake galleons that Dumbledore's army had used to send one another messages. These have been great, said Neville, beaming at Hermione. The Carrows never rumbled how we were communicating. It drove them mad. We used to sneak out at night and put graffiti on the walls. Dumbledore's army, still recruiting. Stuff like that. Snape hated it. You used to, said Harry, who had noticed the past tense. Well, it got more difficult as time went on, said Neville. We lost Luna at Christmas, and Ginny never came back after Easter, and the three of us were sort of the leaders. The Carrows seemed to know I was behind a lot of it. So they started coming down on me hard. And then Michael Corner went and got caught releasing a first year they'd chained up. And they tortured him pretty badly. That scared people off. No kidding, muttered Ron as the passage began to slope upward. Yeah, well, I couldn't ask people to go through what Michael did. 
So we dropped those kind of stunts. But we were still fighting, doing underground stuff, right up until a couple of weeks ago. That's when they decided there was only one way to stop me, I suppose. And they went for Gran. They what? said Harry, Ron and Hermione together. Yeah, said Neville, panting a little now, because the passage was climbing so steeply. Well, you can see they're thinking. It had worked really well, kidnapping kids to force their relatives to behave. I suppose it was only a matter of time before they did it the other way around. Thing was, he faced them, and Harry was astonished to see that he was grinning. They bit off a bit more than they could chew with Gran. Little old witch living alone. They probably thought they didn't need to send anyone particularly powerful. Anyway, Neville laughed. <laughs> Dawlish is still in St. Mungo's, and Gran's on the run. She sent me a letter. He clapped a hand to the breast pocket of his robes telling me she was proud of me, that I'm my parent's son, and to keep it up. Cool, said Ron. Yeah, said Neville happily. Only thing was, once they realized they had no hold over me, they decided Hogwarts could do without me after all. I don't know whether they were planning to kill me or send me to Azkaban. Either way, I knew it was time to disappear. But, said Ron, looking thoroughly confused, aren't... Aren't we heading straight back into Hogwarts? Course, said Neville. You'll see. We're here. They turned a corner, and there ahead of them was the end of the passage. Another short flight of steps led to a door, just like the one hidden behind Ariana's portrait. Neville pushed it open and climbed through. As Harry followed, he heard Neville call out to unseen people. Look who it is! Didn't I tell you? As Harry emerged into the room beyond the passage, there were several screams and yells. Harry! It's Potter! It's Potter! Ron! Hermione! He had a confused impression of colored hangings, of lamps and many faces. The next moment, he, Ron and Hermione were engulfed, hugged, pounded on the back, their hair ruffled, their hands shaken by what seemed to be more than twenty people. They might just have won a Quidditch final. Okay, okay, calm down, Neville called. And as the crowd backed away, Harry was able to take in their surroundings. He did not recognize the room at all. It was enormous and looked rather like the interior of a particularly sumptuous treehouse, or perhaps a gigantic ship's cabin. Multicolored hammocks were strung from the ceiling and from a balcony that ran around the dark wood-paneled and windowless walls, which were covered in bright tapestry hangings. Harry saw the gold Gryffindor lion emblazoned on scarlet, the black badger of Hufflepuff set against yellow, and the bronze eagle of Ravenclaw on blue. The silver and green of Slytherin alone were absent. There were bulging bookcases, a few broomsticks propped against the walls, and in the corner, a large wooden-cased wireless. Where are we? Room of requirement, of course, said Neville. Surpassed itself, hasn't it? The carrows were chasing me, and I knew I had just one chance for a hideout. I managed to get through the door, and this is what I found. Well, it wasn't exactly like this when I arrived. It was a load smaller. There was only one hammock and just Gryffindor hangings, but it's expanded as more and more of the DA have arrived. And the Carrows can't get in? asked Harry, looking around for the door. No, said Seamus Finnegan, whom Harry had not recognized until he spoke. Seamus's face was bruised and puffy. It's a proper hideout. As long as one of us stays in here, they can't get at us. The door won't open. 
It's all down to Neville. He really gets this room. You've got to ask it for exactly what you need. Like, I don't want any Carol's supporters to be able to get in. And it'll do it for you. You've just got to make sure you close the loopholes. Neville's the man. It's quite straightforward, really, said Neville modestly. I'd been in here about a day and a half and getting really hungry and wishing I could get something to eat, and that's when the passage to the Hogshead opened up. I went through it and met Aberforth. He's been providing us with food, because for some reason, that's the one thing the room doesn't really do. Yeah, well, food's one of the five exceptions to Gamp's law of elemental transfiguration, said Ron to general astonishment. So we've been hiding out here for nearly two weeks, said Seamus, and it just makes more hammocks every time we need them. And it even sprouted a pretty good bathroom once girls started turning up. And thought they'd quite like to wash, yes, supplied Lavender Brown, whom Harry had not noticed until that point. Now that he'd looked around properly, he recognized many familiar faces. Both Patil twins were there, as were Terry Boot, Ernie McMillan, Anthony Goldstein, and Michael Corner. Tell us what you've been up to, though, said Ernie. There've been so many rumors. We've been trying to keep up with you on Potter Watch. He pointed at the wireless. You didn't break into Gringotts. They did, said Neville, and the dragon's true, too. There was a smattering of applause and a few whoops. Ron took a bow. What were you after? asked Seamus eagerly. Before any of them could parry the question with one of their own, Harry felt a terrible, scorching pain in the lightning scar. As he turned his back hastily on the curious and delighted faces, the room of requirement vanished, and he was standing inside a ruined stone shack, and the rotting floorboards were ripped apart at his feet. A disinterred golden box lay open and empty beside the hole, and Voldemort's scream of fury vibrated inside his head. With an enormous effort, he pulled out of Voldemort's mind again, back to where he stood, swaying in the room of requirement, sweat pouring from his face, and Ron holding him up. Are you all right, Harry? Neville was saying. Want to sit down? I expect you're tired, aren't you? No, said Harry. He looked at Ron and Hermione, trying to tell them without words that Voldemort had just discovered the loss of one of the other Horcruxes. Time was running out fast. If Voldemort chose to visit Hogwarts next, they would miss their chance. We need to get going, he said, and their expressions told him that they understood. What are we going to do then, Harry? asked Seamus. What's the plan? Plan? repeated Harry. He was exercising all his willpower to prevent himself succumbing again to Voldemort's rage. His scar was still burning. Well, there's something we, Ron, Hermione, and I, need to do, and then we'll get out of here. Nobody was laughing or whooping anymore. Neville looked confused. What do you mean, get out of here? We haven't come back to stay, said Harry, rubbing his scar, trying to soothe the pain. There's something important we need to do. What is it? I... I can't tell you. There was a ripple of muttering at this. Neville's brows contracted. Why can't you tell us? It's something to do with fighting you-know-who, right? Well, yeah. Then we'll help you. The other members of Dumbledore's army were nodding, some enthusiastically, others solemnly. A couple of them rose from their chairs to demonstrate their willingness for immediate action. You don't understand... Harry seemed to have said that a lot in the last few hours. We... we can't tell you. We've got to do it, alone. 
Why? asked Neville. Because, in his desperation to start looking for the missing Horcrux, or at least to have a private discussion with Ron and Hermione about where they might commence their search, Harry found it difficult to gather his thoughts. His scar was still searing. Dumbledore left the three of us a job, he said carefully, and we weren't supposed to tell. I mean, he wanted us to do it, just the three of us. We're his army, said Neville. Dumbledore's army! We were all in it together. We've been keeping it going while you three have been off on your own. It hasn't exactly been a picnic, mate, said Ron. I never said it had, but I don't see why you can't trust us. Everyone in this room's been fighting, and they've been driven in here because the Carrows were hunting them down. Everyone in here's proven they're loyal to Dumbledore, loyal to you. Look, Harry began, without knowing what he was going to say, but it did not matter. The tunnel door had just opened behind him. We got your message, Neville. Hello, you three. I thought you must be here. It was Luna and Dean. Seamus gave a great roar of delight and ran to hug his best friend. Hi, everyone, said Luna happily. Oh, it's great to be back. Luna, said Harry distractedly, what are you doing here? How did you... I sent for her, said Neville, holding up the fake galleon. I promised her and Ginny that if you turned up, I'd let them know. We all thought that if you came back, it would mean revolution, that we were going to overthrow Snape and the Carrows. Of course that's what it means, said Luna brightly. Isn't it, Harry? We're going to fight them out of Hogwarts? Listen, said Harry with a rising sense of panic. I'm sorry, but that's not what we came back for. There's something we've got to do, and then... You're going to leave us in this mess? demanded Michael Corner. No, said Ron. What we're doing will benefit everyone in the end. It's all about trying to get rid of you-know-who. Then let us help, said Neville angrily. We want to be a part of it. There was another noise behind them, and Harry turned. His heart seemed to fail. Ginny was now climbing through the hole in the wall, closely followed by Fred, George, and Lee Jordan. Ginny gave Harry a radiant smile. He had forgotten, or had never fully appreciated, how beautiful she was. But he had never been less pleased to see her. Aberforth's getting a bit annoyed, said Fred, raising his hand in answer to several cries of greeting. He wants a kip, and his bar's turned into a railway station. Harry's mouth fell open. Right behind Lee Jordan came Harry's old girlfriend, Cho Chang. She smiled at him. I got the message she said, holding up her own fake galleon, and she walked over to sit beside Michael Corner. So what's the plan, Harry? said George. There isn't one, said Harry, still disoriented by the sudden appearance of all these people, unable to take everything in while his scar was still burning so fiercely. Just going to make it up as we go along, are we? My favorite kind, said Fred. You've got to stop this, Harry told Neville. What did you call them all back for? This is insane. We're fighting, aren't we? Said Dean, taking out his fake galleon. The message said Harry was back, and we were going to fight. I'll have to get a wand, though. You haven't got a wand? Began Seamus. Ron turned suddenly to Harry. Why can't they help? What? They can help. He dropped his voice and said, so that none of them could hear but Hermione, who stood between them, We don't know where it is. We've got to find it fast. We don't have to tell them it's a Horcrux. 
Harry looked from Ron to Hermione, who murmured, I think Ron's right. We don't even know what we're looking for. We need them. And when Harry looked unconvinced, You don't have to do everything alone, Harry. Harry thought fast, his scar still prickling, his head threatening to split again. Dumbledore had warned him against telling anyone but Ron and Hermione about the Horcruxes. Secrets and lies, that's how we grew up. And Albus, he was a natural. Was he turning into Dumbledore, keeping his secrets clutched to his chest, afraid to trust? But Dumbledore had trusted Snape. And where had that led? To murder at the top of the highest tower. All right, he said quietly to the other two. Okay, he called to the room at large, and all noise ceased. Fred and George, who had been cracking jokes for the benefit of those nearest, fell silent, and all of them looked alert, excited. There's something we need to find, Harry said. Something, something that'll help us overthrow you-know-who. It's here, at Hogwarts, but we don't know where. It might have belonged to Ravenclaw. Has anyone heard of an object like that? Has anyone ever come across something with her eagle on it, for instance? He looked hopefully toward the little group of Ravenclaws, to Padma, Michael, Terry, and Cho. But it was Luna who answered, perched on the arm of Ginny's chair. Well, there's her lost diadem. I told you about it, remember, Harry? The lost diadem of Ravenclaw. Daddy's trying to duplicate it. Yeah, but the lost diadem, said Michael Corner, rolling his eyes, is lost, Luna. That's sort of the point. When was it lost? asked Harry. Centuries ago, they say, said Cho, and Harry's heart sank. Professor Flitwick says the diadem vanished with Ravenclaw herself. People have looked, but... She appealed to her fellow Ravenclaws. Nobody's ever found a trace of it, have they? They all shook their heads. Sorry, but what is a diadem? asked Ron. It's a kind of crown, said Terry Boot. Ravenclaws was supposed to have magical properties, enhance the wisdom of the wearer. Yes, Daddy's Raxpert siphons. But Harry cut across Luna. And none of you have ever seen anything that looks like it? They all shook their heads again. Harry looked at Ron and Hermione, and his own disappointment was mirrored back at him. An object that had been lost this long and apparently without trace did not seem like a good candidate for the Horcrux hidden in the castle. Before he could formulate a new question, however, Cho spoke again. If you'd like to see what the diadem's supposed to look like, I could take you out to our common room and show you, Harry. Ravenclaw's wearing it in her statue. Harry's scar scorched again. For a moment the room of requirements swam before him, and he saw instead the dark earth soaring beneath him, and felt the great snake wrapped around his shoulders. Voldemort was flying again, whether to the underground lake or here, to the castle, he did not know. Either way, there was hardly any time left. He's on the move, he said quietly to Ron and Hermione. He glanced at Cho and then back at them. Listen, I know it's not much of a lead, but I'm going to go and look at this statue. At least find out what the diadem looks like. Wait for me here and keep, you know, the other one safe. Cho had got to her feet but Ginny said rather fiercely, No, Luna will take Harry, won't you, Luna? Oh, yes, I'd like to, said Luna happily, and Cho sat down again, looking disappointed. How do we get out? Harry asked Neville. Over here. He led Harry and Luna to a corner where a small cupboard opened onto a steep staircase. 
It comes out somewhere different every day, so they've never been able to find it, he said. Only trouble is, we never know exactly where we're going to end up when we go out. Be careful, Harry. They're always patrolling the corridors at night. No problem, said Harry. See you in a bit. He and Luna hurried up the staircase, which was long, lit by torches, and turned corners in unexpected places. At last they reached what appeared to be solid wall. Get under here, Harry told Luna, pulling out the invisibility cloak and throwing it over both of them. He gave the wall a little push. It melted away at his touch, and they slipped outside. Harry glanced back and saw that it had resealed itself at once. They were standing in a dark corridor. Harry pulled Luna back into the shadows, fumbled in the pouch around his neck, and took out the marauder's map. Holding it close to his nose, he searched and located his and Luna's dots at last. We're up on the fifth floor, he whispered, watching Filch moving away from them, a corridor ahead. Come on, this way. They crept off. Harry had prowled the castle at night many times before, but never had his heart hammered this fast. Never had so much depended on his safe passage through the place. Through squares of moonlight upon the floor, past suits of armor whose helmets creaked at the sound of their soft footsteps, around corners beyond which who knew what lurked, Harry and Luna walked, checking the marauder's map whenever light permitted, twice pausing to allow a ghost to pass without drawing attention to themselves. He expected to encounter an obstacle at any moment. His worst fear was Peeves, and he strained his ears with every step to hear the first telltale signs of the poltergeist's approach. This way, Harry, breathed Luna, plucking his sleeve and pulling him toward a spiral staircase. They climbed in tight, dizzying circles. Harry had never been up here before. At last they reached the door. There was no handle and no keyhole. Nothing but a plain expanse of aged wood, and a bronze knocker in the shape of an eagle. Luna reached out a pale hand which looked eerie floating in midair, unconnected to arm or body. She knocked once, and in the silence it sounded to Harry like a cannon blast. At once the beak of the eagle opened, but instead of a bird's call, a soft musical voice said, Which came first, the phoenix or the flame? Hmm. What do you think, Harry? said Luna, looking thoughtful. What? Isn't there just a password? Oh, no, you've got to answer a question, said Luna. What if you get it wrong? Well, you have to wait for somebody who gets it right, said Luna. That way you learn, you see? Yeah, trouble is, we can't really afford to wait for anyone else, Luna. No, I see what you mean, said Luna seriously. Well, then... I think the answer is that a circle has no beginning. Well-reasoned, said the voice, and the door swung open. The deserted Ravenclaw common room was a wide, circular room, airier than any Harry had ever seen at Hogwarts. Graceful arched windows punctuated the walls, which were hung with blue and bronze silks. By day, the Ravenclaws would have a spectacular view of the surrounding mountains. The ceiling was domed and painted with stars which were echoed in the midnight blue carpet. There were tables, chairs, and bookcases, and in a niche opposite the door stood a tall statue of white marble. Harry recognized Rowena Ravenclaw from the bust he had seen at Luna's house. The statue stood beside a door that led, he guessed, to dormitories above. He strode right up to the marble woman, 
and she seemed to look back at him with a quizzical half-smile on her face, beautiful yet slightly intimidating. A delicate-looking circlet had been reproduced in marble on top of her head. It was not unlike the tiara Fleur had worn at her wedding. There were tiny words etched into it. Harry stepped out from under the cloak and climbed up onto Ravenclaw's plinth to read them. Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. Which makes you pretty skin witless, said a cackling voice. Harry whirled around, slipped off the plinth, and landed on the floor. The sloping-shouldered figure of Electo Caro was standing before him, and even as Harry raised his wand, she pressed a stubby forefinger to the skull and snake branded on her forearm. Chapter 30 The Sacking of Severus Snape The moment her finger touched the mark, Harry's scar burned savagely. The starry room vanished from sight, and he was standing upon an outcrop of rock beneath a cliff, and the sea was washing around him, and there was triumph in his heart. They have the boy. A loud bang brought Harry back to where he stood. Disoriented, he raised his wand, but the witch before him was already falling forward. She hit the ground so hard that the glass in the bookcases tinkled. I've never stunned anyone except in our DA lessons, said Luna, sounding mildly interested. That was noisier than I thought it would be. And sure enough, the ceiling had begun to tremble. Scurrying, echoing footsteps were growing louder from behind the door leading to the dormitories. Luna's spell had woken Ravenclaws sleeping above. Luna, where are you? I need to get under the cloak. Luna's feet appeared out of nowhere. He hurried to her side, and she let the cloak fall back over them as the door opened and a stream of Ravenclaws, all in their nightclothes, flooded into the common room. There were gasps and cries of surprise as they saw Electo lying there unconscious. Slowly they shuffled in around her, a savage beast that might wake at any moment and attack them. Then one brave little first year darted up to her and prodded her backside with his big toe. I think she might be dead, he shouted with delight. Oh, look, whispered Luna happily as the Ravenclaws crowded in around Electo. They're pleased. Yeah, great. Harry closed his eyes, and as his scar throbbed, he chose to sink again into Voldemort's mind. He was moving along the tunnel into the first cave. He had chosen to make sure of the locket before coming, but that would not take him long. There was a rap on the common room door, and every Ravenclaw froze. From the other side, Harry heard the soft, musical voice that issued from the eagle doorknocker. Where do vanished objects go? I don't know, do I? Shut it! Snarled an uncouth voice that Harry knew was that of the Caro brother, Amicus. Alexo! Alexo! Are you there? Have you got him? Open the door! The Ravenclaws were whispering among themselves, terrified. Then, without warning, there came a series of loud bangs as though somebody was firing a gun into the door. Alexo! If he comes and we haven't got Potter... Do you want to go the same way as the Malfoys? Answer me! Amicus bellowed, shaking the door for all he was worth, but still it did not open. The raven claws were all backing away, and some of the most frightened began scampering back up the staircase to their beds. Then, just as Harry was wondering whether he ought not to blast open the door and stun Amicus before the Death Eater could do anything else, a second, 
most familiar voice rang out beyond the door. May I ask what you are doing, Professor Carroll? Trying to get through this damned door, shouted Amicus. Go and get Flitwick. Get him to open it, now. But isn't your sister in there? asked Professor McGonagall. Didn't Professor Flitwick let her in earlier this evening at your urgent request? Perhaps she could open the door for you. Then you needn't wake up half the castle. She ain't answering you, old Beeson. You open it, go on. Do it, now. Certainly, if you wish it, said Professor McGonagall with awful coldness. There was a genteel tap of the knocker, and the musical voice asked again. Where do vanished objects go? Into non-being, which is to say everything, replied Professor McGonagall. Nicely phrased, replied the eagle door-knocker, and the door swung open. The few Ravenclaws who had remained behind sprinted for the stairs as Amicus burst over the threshold, brandishing his wand. Hunched like his sister, he had a pallid, doughy face and tiny eyes, which fell at once on a lecto sprawled motionless on the floor. He let out a yell of fury and fear. What have they done? The little whelps! he screamed. I'll cruciate a lot of them till they tell me who did it. And what's the Dark Lord going to say? he shrieked, standing over his sister and smacking himself on the forehead with his fist. We haven't got him, and they've gone and killed her. She's only stunned, said Professor McGonagall impatiently, who had stooped down to examine Electo. She'll be perfectly all right. No, she bludgering well won't, bellowed Amicus. Not after the Dark Lord gets hold of her. She's gone and sent for him. I felt me mark burn, and he thinks we've got Potter. Got Potter? said Professor McGonagall sharply. What do you mean, got Potter? He told us Potter might try and get inside Ravenclaw Tower and to send for him if we caught him. Why would Harry Potter try to get inside Ravenclaw Tower? Potter belongs in my house. Beneath the disbelief and anger, Harry heard a little strain of pride in her voice and affection for Minerva McGonagall gushed up inside him. We was told he might come in here said Caro. I don't know why, do I? Professor McGonagall stood up, and her beady eyes swept the room. Twice they passed right over the place where Harry and Luna stood. We can push it off on the kids, said Amicus, his pig-like face suddenly crafty. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll say Electo was ambushed by the kids, them kids, up there. He looked up at the starry ceiling toward the dormitories. And we'll say they forced her to press her mark. And that's why he got a false alarm. He can punish them. Couple of kids, more or less. What's the difference? Only the difference between truth and lies, courage and cowardice, said Professor McGonagall, who had turned pale. A difference, in short, which you and your sister seem unable to appreciate. But let me make one thing very clear. You are not going to pass off your many ineptitudes on the students of Hogwarts. I shall not permit it. Excuse me? Amicus moved forward until he was offensively close to Professor McGonagall, his face within inches of hers. She refused to back away, but looked down at him as if he were something disgusting she had found stuck to a lavatory seat. It's not a case of what you'll permit, Minerva McGonagall. Your time's over. It's us what's in charge here now, and you'll back me up or you'll pay the price and he spat in her face.
Harry pulled the cloak off himself, raised his wand and said, You shouldn't have done that. As Amicus spun around, Harry shouted, Crucio! The Death Eater was lifted off his feet. He writhed through the air like a drowning man, thrashing and howling in pain, and then with a crunch and a shattering of glass, he smashed into the front of a bookcase and crumpled, insensible to the floor. I see what Bellatrix meant, said Harry, the blood thundering through his brain. You need to really mean it. Potter, whispered Professor McGonagall, clutching her heart. Potter, you hear? What? How? She struggled to pull herself together. Potter, that was foolish. He spat at you, said Harry. Potter, I... that was very, very gallant of you. But don't you realize... Yeah, I do, Harry assured her. Somehow, her panic steadied him. Professor McGonagall, Voldemort's on the way. Oh, are we allowed to say the name now? Asked Luna with an air of interest, pulling off the invisibility cloak. This appearance of a second outlaw seemed to overwhelm Professor McGonagall, who staggered backward and fell into a nearby chair, clutching at the neck of her old tartan dressing gown. I don't think it makes any difference what we call him, Harry told Luna. He already knows where I am. In a distant part of Harry's brain, that part connected to the angry burning scar, he could see Voldemort sailing fast over the dark lake in the ghostly green boat. He had nearly reached the island where the stone basin stood. You must flee, whispered Professor McGonagall. Now, Potter, as quickly as you can. I can't, said Harry. There's something I need to do. Professor, do you know where the Diadem of Ravenclaw is? The d Diadem of Ravenclaw? Of course not. Hasn't it been lost for centuries? She sat up a little straighter. Potter, it was madness, utter madness for you to enter this castle. I had to, said Harry. Professor, there's something hidden here that I'm supposed to find, and it could be the diadem. If I could just speak to Professor Flitwick. There was a sound of movement, of clinking glass. Amicus was coming round. Before Harry or Luna could act, Professor McGonagall rose to her feet, pointed her wand at the groggy Death Eater, and said, Imperio! Amicus got up, walked over to his sister, picked up her wand, then shuffled obediently to Professor McGonagall and handed it over along with his own. Then he lay down on the floor beside Electo. Professor McGonagall waved her wand again, and a length of shimmering silver rope appeared out of thin air and snaked around the carrows, binding them tightly together. Potter! said Professor McGonagall, turning to face him again with superb indifference to the carrow's predicament. If he who must not be named does indeed know that you are here. As she said it, a wrath that was like physical pain blazed through Harry, setting his scar on fire. And for a second he looked down upon a basin whose potion had turned clear, and saw that no golden locket lay safe beneath the surface. Potter, are you all right? said a voice, and Harry came back. He was clutching Luna's shoulder to steady himself. Time's running out. Voldemort's getting nearer. Professor, I'm acting on Dumbledore's orders. I must find what he wanted me to find. But we've got to get the students out while I'm searching the castle. It's me Voldemort wants, but he won't care about killing a few more or less. Not now. Not now he knows I'm attacking Horcruxes. Harry finished the sentence in his head. You're acting on Dumbledore's orders? she repeated with a look of dawning wonder. Then she drew herself up to her fullest height. 
We shall secure the school against he who must not be named while you search for this, this object. Is that possible? I think so, said Professor McGonagall dryly. We teachers are rather good at magic, you know. I am sure we will be able to hold him off for a while if we all put our best efforts into it. Of course, something will have to be done about Professor Snape. Let me, and if Hogwarts is about to enter a state of siege with the Dark Lord at the gates, it would indeed be advisable to take as many innocent people out of the way as possible. With the flu network under observation and apparition impossible within the grounds, there's a way, said Harry quickly, and he explained about the passageway leading into the hogshead. Potter, we're talking about hundreds of students. I know, Professor, but if Voldemort and the Death Eaters are concentrating on the school boundaries, they won't be interested in anyone who's disapparating out of the hogshead. There's something in that, she agreed. She pointed her wand at the carrows, and a silver net fell upon their bound bodies, tied itself around them, and hoisted them into the air, where they dangled beneath the blue and gold ceiling like two large, ugly sea creatures. Come, we must alert the other heads of house. You'd better put that cloak back on. She marched toward the door, and as she did so she raised her wand. From the tip burst three silver cats with spectacle markings around their eyes. The Patronuses ran sleekly ahead, filling the spiral staircase with silvery light, as Professor McGonagall, Harry, and Luna hurried back down. Along the corridors they raced, and one by one the Patronuses left them. Professor McGonagall's tartan dressing gown rustled over the floor, and Harry and Luna jogged behind her under the cloak. They had descended two more floors when another set of quiet footsteps joined theirs. Harry, whose scar was still prickling, heard them first. He felt in the pouch around his neck for the marauder's map, but before he could take it out, McGonagall too seemed to become aware of their company. She halted, raised her wand ready to duel, and said, Who's there? It is I, said a low voice. From behind a suit of armor stepped Severus Snape. Hatred boiled up in Harry at the sight of him. He had forgotten the details of Snape's appearance in the magnitude of his crimes, forgotten how his greasy black hair hung in curtains around his thin face, how his black eyes had a dead, cold look. He was not wearing night clothes, but was dressed in his usual black cloak, and he too was holding his wand, ready for a fight. Where are the carrows? he asked quietly. Wherever you told them to be, I expect Severus said Professor McGonagall. Snape stepped nearer, and his eyes flitted over Professor McGonagall into the air around her, as if he knew that Harry was there. Harry held his wand up too, ready to attack. I was under the impression, Snape said, that Electo had apprehended an intruder. Really? said Professor McGonagall. And what gave you that impression? Snape made a slight flexing movement of his left arm where the dark mark was branded into his skin. Oh, but naturally, said Professor McGonagall, you Death Eaters have your own private means of communication. I forgot. Snape pretended not to have heard her. His eyes were still probing the air all about her, and he was moving gradually closer with an air of hardly noticing what he was doing. I did not know that it was your night to patrol the corridors, Minerva. You have some objection? 
I wonder what could have brought you out of your bed at this late hour. I thought I heard a disturbance, said Professor McGonagall. Really? But all seems calm. Snape looked into her eyes. Have you seen Harry Potter, Minerva? Because if you have, I must insist. Professor McGonagall moved faster than Harry could have believed. Her wand slashed through the air, and for a split second, Harry thought that Snape must crumple, unconscious. But the swiftness of his shield charm was such that McGonagall was thrown off balance. She brandished her wand at a torch on the wall, and it flew out of its bracket. Harry, about to curse Snape, was forced to pull Luna out of the way of the descending flames, which became a ring of fire that filled the corridor and flew like a lasso at Snape. Then it was no longer fire, but a great black serpent that McGonagall blasted to smoke, which reformed and solidified in seconds to become a swarm of pursuing daggers. Snape avoided them only by forcing the suit of armor in front of him, and with echoing clangs, the daggers sank, one after another, into its breast. Minerva, said a squeaky voice, and looking behind him, still shielding Luna from flying spells, Harry saw Professors Flitwick and Sprout sprinting up the corridor toward them in their nightclothes, with the enormous Professor Slughorn panting along at the rear. No, squealed Flitwick, raising his wand. You'll do no more murder at Hogwarts. Flitwick's spell hit the suit of armor behind which Snape had taken shelter. With a clatter, it came to life. Snape struggled free of the crushing arms and sent it flying back toward his attackers. Harry and Luna had to dive sideways to avoid it as it smashed into the wall and shattered. When Harry looked up again, Snape was in full flight, McGonagall, Flitwick, and Sprout all thundering after him. He hurtled through a classroom door and, moments later, he heard McGonagall cry, Coward! Coward! What's happened? What's happened? asked Luna. Harry dragged her to her feet, and they raced along the corridor, trailing the invisibility cloak behind them into the deserted classroom where Professors McGonagall, Flitwick, and Sprout were standing at a smashed window. He jumped, said Professor McGonagall, as Harry and Luna ran into the room. You mean he's dead? Harry sprinted to the window, ignoring Flitwick's and Sprout's yells of shock at his sudden appearance. No, he's not dead, said McGonagall bitterly. Unlike Dumbledore, he was still carrying a wand, and he seems to have learned a few tricks from his master. With a tingle of horror, Harry saw in the distance a huge bat-like shape flying through the darkness toward the perimeter wall. There were heavy footfalls behind them, and a great deal of puffing. Slughorn had just caught up. Harry! he panted, massaging his immense chest beneath his emerald green silk pajamas. My dear boy, what a surprise, Minerva. Do please explain. Severus, what? Our headmaster is taking a short break, said Professor McGonagall, pointing at the snape-shaped hole in the window. Professor, Harry shouted, his hands at his forehead. He could see the inferi-filled lake sliding beneath him, and he felt the ghostly green boat bump into the underground shore and Voldemort leapt from it with murder in his heart. Professor, we've got to barricade the school. He's coming, now. Very well. He who must not be named is coming, she told the other teachers. Sprout and Flitwick gasped. Slughorn let out a low groan. 
Potter has work to do in the castle on Dumbledore's orders. We need to put in place every protection of which we are capable while Potter does what he needs to do. You realize, of course, that nothing we do will be able to keep out you-know-who indefinitely? Squeaked Flitwick. But we can hold him up, said Professor Sprout. Thank you, Pomona, said Professor McGonagall, and between the two witches there passed a look of grim understanding. I suggest we establish basic protection around the place, then gather our students and meet in the Great Hall. Most must be evacuated, though if any of those who are over age wish to stay and fight, I think they ought to be given the chance. Agreed, said Professor Sprout, already hurrying toward the door. I shall meet you in the Great Hall in twenty minutes with my house. And as she jogged out of sight, they could hear her muttering, Tentacular, devil's snare, and snargle of pods. Yes, I'd like to see the Death Eaters fighting those. I can act from here, said Flitwick, and although he could barely see out of it, he pointed his wand through the smashed window and started muttering incantations of great complexity. Harry heard a weird rushing noise, as though Flitwick had unleashed the power of the wind into the grounds. Professor, Harry said, approaching the little charms master. Professor, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is important. Have you got any idea where the Diadem of Ravenclaw is? Protego Horribilis, the Diadem of Ravenclaw, squeaked Flitwick. A little extra wisdom never goes amiss, Potter, but I hardly think it would be much use in this situation. I only meant, do you know where it is? Have you ever seen it? Seen it? Nobody has seen it in living memory. Long since lost, boy. Harry felt a mixture of desperate disappointment and panic. What then was the Horcrux? We shall meet you and your Ravenclaws in the Great Hall, Phileas, said Professor McGonagall, beckoning to Harry and Luna to follow her. They had just reached the door when Slughorn rumbled into speech. My word! He puffed, pale and sweaty, his walrus moustache a-quiver. What's her to do? I'm not at all sure whether this is wise, Minerva. He is bound to find a way in, you know, and anyone who has tried to delay him will be in most grievous peril. I shall expect you and the Slytherins in the Great Hall in twenty minutes also, said Professor McGonagall. If you wish to leave with your students, we shall not stop you. But if any of you attempt to sabotage our resistance or take up arms against us within this castle, then, Horace, we duel to kill. Minerva, he said aghast. The time has come for Slytherin House to decide upon its loyalties, interrupted Professor McGonagall. Go and wake your students, Horace. Harry did not stay to watch Slughorn splutter. He and Luna ran after Professor McGonagall, who had taken up a position in the middle of the corridor and raised her wand. Pia totem! Oh, for heaven's sake, Felch, not now! The aged caretaker had just come hobbling into view, shouting, Students out of bed! Students in the corridors! They're supposed to be, you blithering idiot! shouted McGonagall. Now go and do something constructive! Find Peeves! Peeves? stammered Filch, as though he had never heard the name before. Yes, Peeves, you fool! Peeves! Haven't you been complaining about him for a quarter of a century? Go and fetch him at once! Filch evidently thought Professor McGonagall had taken leave of her senses, 
but hobbled away, hunch-shouldered, muttering under his breath. And now, per totem locomotor, cried Professor McGonagall. And all along the corridor, the statues and suits of armor jumped down from their plinths, and from the echoing crashes from the floors above and below, Harry knew that their fellows throughout the castle had done the same. Hogwarts is threatened, shouted Professor McGonagall. Man the boundaries, protect us, do your duty to our school. Clattering and yelling, the horde of moving statues stampeded past Harry, some of them smaller, others larger than life. There were animals, too, and the clanking suits of armor brandished swords and spiked balls on chains. Now, Potter, said McGonagall, you and Miss Lovegood had better return to your friends and bring them to the Great Hall. I shall rouse the other Gryffindors. They parted at the top of the next staircase, Harry and Luna running back toward the concealed entrance to the Room of Requirement. As they ran, they met crowds of students, most wearing traveling cloaks over their pajamas, being shepherded down to the Great Hall by teachers and prefects. That was Potter. Harry Potter? It was him, I swear, I just saw him. But Harry did not look back, and at last they reached the entrance to the Room of Requirement. Harry leaned against the enchanted wall, which opened to admit them, and he and Luna sped back down the steep staircase. What? As the room came into view, Harry slipped down a few stairs in shock. It was packed, far more crowded than when he had last been in there. Kingsley and Lupin were looking up at him, as were Oliver Wood, Katie Bell, Angelina Johnson, and Alicia Spinnet, Bill and Fleur, and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley. Harry, what's happening? said Lupin, meeting him at the foot of the stairs. Voldemort's on his way. They're barricading the school. Snape's run for it. What are you doing here? How did you know? We sent messages to the rest of Dumbledore's army, Fred explained. You couldn't expect everyone to miss the fun, Harry. And the DA let the Order of the Phoenix know, and it all kind of snowballed. What first, Harry? called George. What's going on? They're evacuating the younger kids and everyone's meeting in the Great Hall to get organized, Harry said. We're fighting. There was a great roar and a surge toward the foot of the stairs. He was pressed back against the wall as they ran past him, the mingled members of the Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore's army, and Harry's old Quidditch team, all with their wands drawn, heading up into the main castle. Come on, Luna, Dean called as he passed, holding out his free hand. She took it and followed him back up the stairs. The crowd was thinning. Only a little knot of people remained below in the room of requirement, and Harry joined them. Mrs. Weasley was struggling with Ginny. Around them stood Lupin, Fred, George, Bill, and Fleur. You're underage, Mrs. Weasley shouted at her daughter as Harry approached. I won't permit it. The boys, yes, but you, you've got to go home. I won't. Ginny's hair flew as she pulled her arm out of her mother's grip. I'm in Dumbledore's army. A teenager's gang. A teenager's gang that's about to take him on, which no one else has dared to do, said Fred. She's sixteen, shouted Mrs. Weasley. She's not old enough. What you two were thinking, bringing her with you? Fred and George looked slightly ashamed of themselves. Mum's right, Ginny, said Bill gently. You can't do this. Everyone underage will have to leave. It's only right. I can't go home. Ginny shouted, angry tears sparkling in her eyes. My whole family's here. I can't stand waiting there alone and not knowing and... 
Her eyes met Harry's for the first time. She looked at him beseechingly, but he shook his head, and she turned away bitterly. Fine, she said, staring at the entrance to the tunnel back to the hogshead. I'll say goodbye now, then, and... There was a scuffling and a great thump. Someone else had clambered out of the tunnel, overbalanced slightly, and fallen. He pulled himself up on the nearest chair, looked around through lopsided, horn-rimmed glasses, and said, Am I too late? Has it started? I only just found out, so I... I... Percy spluttered into silence. Evidently, he had not expected to run into most of his family. There was a long moment of astonishment, broken by Fleur turning to Lupin and saying, in a wildly transparent attempt to break the tension, So, how is little Teddy? Lupin blinked at her, startled. The silence between the Weasleys seemed to be solidifying like ice. I, oh yes, he's fine, Lupin said loudly. Yes, Tonks is with him, at her mother's. Percy and the other Weasleys were still staring at one another, frozen. Here, I've got a picture, Lupin shouted, pulling a photograph from inside his jacket and showing it to Fleur and Harry, who saw a tiny baby with a tuft of bright turquoise hair waving fat fists at the camera. I was a fool, Percy roared, so loudly that Lupin nearly dropped his photograph. I was an idiot. I was a pompous prat. I was a... a... Ministry-loving, family-disowning, power-hungry moron, said Fred. Percy swallowed. Yes, I was. Well, you can't say fairer than that, said Fred, holding out his hand to Percy. Mrs. Weasley burst into tears. She ran forward, pushed Fred aside, and pulled Percy into a strangling hug, while he patted her on the back, his eyes on his father. I'm sorry, Dad, Percy said. Mr. Weasley blinked rather rapidly, then he too hurried to hug his son. What made you see sense, Perce? inquired George. It's been coming on for a while, said Percy, mopping his eyes under his glasses with a corner of his traveling cloak. But I had to find a way out, and it's not so easy at the ministry. They're imprisoning traitors all the time. I managed to make contact with Aberforth, and he tipped me off ten minutes ago that Hogwarts was going to make a fight of it, so here I am. Well, we do look to our prefects to take a lead at times such as these, said George, in a good imitation of Percy's most pompous manner. Now, let's get upstairs and fight, or all the good Death Eaters will be taken. So, you're my sister-in-law now? said Percy, shaking hands with Fleur as they hurried off toward the staircase with Bill, Fred, and George. Ginny, barked Mrs. Weasley. Ginny had been attempting, under cover of the reconciliation, to sneak upstairs, too. Molly, how about this, said Lupin. Why doesn't Ginny stay here? Then at least she'll be on the scene and know what's going on, but she won't be in the middle of the fighting. I... That's a good idea said Mr. Weasley firmly. Ginny, you stay in this room, you hear me? Ginny did not seem to like the idea much, but under her father's unusually stern gaze, she nodded. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley and Lupin headed off for the stairs as well. Where's Ron? asked Harry. Where's Hermione? They must have gone up to the Great Hall already, Mr. Weasley called over his shoulder. I didn't see them pass me, said Harry. 
They said something about a bathroom, said Ginny, not long after you left. A bathroom? Harry strode across the room to an open door leading off the room of requirement and checked the bathroom beyond. It was empty. You're sure they said bath? But then his scar seared and the room of requirement vanished. He was looking through the high wrought iron gates with winged boars on pillars at either side, looking through the dark grounds toward the castle, which was ablaze with lights. Nagini lay draped over his shoulders. He was possessed of that cold, cruel sense of purpose that preceded murder. Chapter 31 The Battle of Hogwarts The enchanted ceiling of the Great Hall was dark and scattered with stars, and below it the four long house tables were lined with disheveled students, some in traveling cloaks, others in dressing gowns. Here and there shone the pearly white figures of the school ghosts. Every eye, living and dead, was fixed upon Professor McGonagall, who was speaking from the raised platform at the top of the hall. Behind her stood the remaining teachers, including the Palomino Centaur Forenzi and the members of the Order of the Phoenix who had arrived to fight. Evacuation will be overseen by Mr. Filch and Madame Pomfrey. Prefects, when I give the word, you will organize your house and take your charges in an orderly fashion to the evacuation point. Many of the students looked petrified. However, as Harry skirted the walls, scanning the Gryffindor table for Ron and Hermione, Ernie McMillan stood up at the Hufflepuff table and shouted, And what if we want to stay and fight? There was a smattering of applause. If you are of age, you may stay, said Professor McGonagall. What about our things? called a girl at the Ravenclaw table. Our trunks, our owls. We have no time to collect possessions, said Professor McGonagall. The important thing is to get you out of here safely. Where's Professor Snape? shouted a girl from the Slytherin table. He has, to use the common phrase, done a bunk, replied Professor McGonagall, and a great cheer erupted from the Gryffindors, Hufflepuffs, and Ravenclaws. Harry moved up the hall alongside the Gryffindor table, still looking for Ron and Hermione. As he passed, Faces turned in his direction, and a great deal of whispering broke out in his wake. We have already placed protection around the castle, Professor McGonagall was saying, but it is unlikely to hold for very long unless we reinforce it. I must ask you, therefore, to move quickly and calmly and do as your prefects. But her final words were drowned as a different voice echoed throughout the hall. It was high, cold, and clear. There was no telling from where it came. It seemed to issue from the walls themselves. Like the monster it had once commanded, it might have lain dormant there for centuries. I know that you are preparing to fight. There were screams amongst the students, some of whom clutched each other, looking around in terror for the source of the sound. Your efforts are futile. You cannot fight me. I do not want to kill you. I have great respect for the teachers of Hogwarts. I do not want to spill magical blood. There was silence in the hall now, the kind of silence that presses against the eardrums that seems too huge to be contained by walls. Give me Harry Potter, said Voldemort's voice. 
and none shall be harmed. Give me Harry Potter, and I shall leave the school untouched. Give me Harry Potter, and you will be rewarded. You have until midnight. The silence swallowed them all again. Every head turned, every eye in the place seemed to have found Harry, to hold him frozen in the glare of thousands of invisible beams. Then a figure rose from the Slytherin table, and he recognized Pansy Parkinson, as she raised a shaking arm and screamed, But he's there! Potter's there! Someone grab him! Before Harry could speak, there was a massive movement. The Gryffindors in front of him had risen and stood facing, not Harry, but the Slytherins. Then the Hufflepuffs stood, and almost at the same moment, the Ravenclaws, all of them with their backs to Harry, all of them looking toward Pansy instead. And Harry, awestruck and overwhelmed, saw ones emerging everywhere, pulled from beneath cloaks and from under sleeves. Thank you, Miss Parkinson, said Professor McGonagall in a clipped voice. You will leave the hall first with Mr. Filch, if the rest of your house could follow. Harry heard the grinding of benches, and then the sound of the Slytherins trooping out on the other side of the hall. Ravenclaws, follow on! cried Professor McGonagall. Slowly the four tables emptied. The slithering table was completely deserted, but a number of older Ravenclaws remained seated while their fellows filed out. Even more Hufflepuffs stayed behind, and half of Gryffindor remained in their seats, necessitating Professor McGonagall's descent from the teacher's platform to chivy the underage on their way. Absolutely not! Creevy, go! And you peeks! Harry hurried over to the Weasleys, all sitting together at the Gryffindor table. Where were Ron and Hermione? Haven't you found? began Mr. Weasley, looking worried. But he broke off as Kingsley had stepped forward on the raised platform to address those who had remained behind. We've only got half an hour until midnight, so we need to act fast. A battle plan has been agreed between the teachers of Hogwarts and the Order of the Phoenix. Professors Flitwick, Sprout, and McGonagall are going to take groups of fighters up to the three highest towers, Ravenclaw, Astronomy, and Gryffindor, where they'll have a good overview, excellent positions from which to work spells. Meanwhile, Remus, he indicated Lupin, Arthur, he pointed toward Mr. Weasley, sitting at the Gryffindor table, and I will take groups into the grounds. We'll need somebody to organize defense of the entrances of the passageways into the school. Sounds like a job for us, called Fred, indicating himself and George, and Kingsley nodded his approval. All right, lead us up here, and we'll divide up the troops. Potter, said Professor McGonagall, hurrying up to him, as students flooded the platform, jostling for position, receiving instructions. Aren't you supposed to be looking for something? What? Oh, said Harry. Oh, yeah. He had almost forgotten about the Horcrux, almost forgotten that the battle was being fought so that he could search for it. The inexplicable absence of Ron and Hermione had momentarily driven every other thought from his mind. Then go, Potter, go! Right, yeah. He sensed eyes following him as he ran out of the Great Hall again, into the entrance hall still crowded with evacuating students. He allowed himself to be swept up the marble staircase with them. But at the top, 
He hurried off along a deserted corridor. Fear and panic were clouding his thought processes. He tried to calm himself, to concentrate on finding the Horcrux. But his thoughts buzzed as frantically and fruitlessly as wasps trapped beneath a glass. Without Ron and Hermione to help him, he could not seem to marshal his ideas. He slowed down, coming to a halt halfway along an empty passage, where he sat down upon the plinth of a departed statue and pulled the marauder's map out of the pouch around his neck. He could not see Ron's or Hermione's names anywhere on it, though the density of the crowd of dots now making its way to the room of requirement might, he thought, be concealing them. He put the map away, pressed his hands over his face, and closed his eyes, trying to concentrate. Voldemort thought I'd go to Ravenclaw Tower. There it was, a solid fact, the place to start. Voldemort had stationed Electo Caro in the Ravenclaw common room, and there could only be one explanation. Voldemort feared that Harry already knew his Horcrux was connected to that house. But the only object anyone seemed to associate with Ravenclaw was the lost diadem. And how could the Horcrux be the diadem? How was it possible that Voldemort, the Slytherin, had found the diadem that had eluded generations of Ravenclaws? Who could have told him where to look when nobody had seen the diadem in living memory? In living memory? Beneath his fingers, Harry's eyes flew open again. He leapt up from the plinth and tore back the way he had come, now in pursuit of his one last hope. The sound of hundreds of people marching toward the room of requirement grew louder and louder as he returned to the marble stairs. Prefects were shouting instructions, trying to keep track of the students in their own houses. There was much pushing and shoving. Harry saw Zacharias Smith bowling over first years to get to the front of the queue. Here and there, younger students were in tears, while older ones called desperately for friends or siblings. Harry caught sight of a pearly white figure drifting across the entrance hall below and yelled as loudly as he could over the clamor. Nick! Nick! I need to talk to you! He forced his way back through the tide of students, finally reaching the bottom of the stairs, where nearly headless Nick, ghost of Gryffindor Tower, stood waiting for him. Harry, my dear boy. Nick made to grasp Harry's hands with both of his own. Harry's felt as though they had been thrust into icy water. Nick, you've got to help me. Who's the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower? Nearly headless Nick looked surprised and a little offended. The Grey Lady, of course. But if it is ghostly services you require, it's got to be her. Do you know where she is? Let's see. Nick's head wobbled a little on his ruff as he turned hither and thither, peering over the heads of the swarming students. That's her over there, Harry, the young woman with the long hair. Harry looked in the direction of Nick's transparent, pointing finger and saw a tall ghost who caught sight of Harry looking at her, raised her eyebrows and drifted away through a solid wall. Harry ran after her. Once through the door of the corridor into which she had disappeared, he saw her at the very end of the passage, still gliding smoothly away from him. Hey, wait, come back. She consented to pause, floating a few inches from the ground. Harry supposed that she was beautiful, with her waist-length hair and floor-length cloak, but she also looked haughty and proud. Close to, 
He recognized her as a ghost he had passed several times in the corridor, but to whom he had never spoken. You're the Grey Lady? She nodded, but did not speak. The ghost of Ravenclaw Tower? That is correct. Her tone was not encouraging. Please, I need some help. I need to know anything you can tell me about the lost diadem. Her cold smile curved her lips. I am afraid, she said, turning to leave, that I cannot help you. Wait! He had not meant to shout, but anger and panic were threatening to overwhelm him. He glanced at his watch as she hovered in front of him. It was a quarter to midnight. This is urgent, he said fiercely. If that diadem's at Hogwarts, I've got to find it, fast. You are hardly the first student to covet the diadem, she said disdainfully. Generations of students have badgered me. This isn't about trying to get better marks, Harry shouted at her. It's about Voldemort, defeating Voldemort. Or aren't you interested in that? She could not blush, but her transparent cheeks became more opaque, and her voice was heated as she replied, Of course I... How dare you suggest? Well, help me then. Her composure was slipping. It... It is not a question of... She stammered. My mother's diadem. Your mother's? She looked angry with herself. When I lived, she said stiffly, I was Helena Ravenclaw. You're her daughter? But then you must know what happened to it. While the diadem bestows wisdom, she said with an obvious effort to pull herself together, I doubt that it would greatly increase your chances of defeating the wizard who calls himself Lord. Haven't I just told you? I'm not interested in wearing it, Harry said fiercely. There's no time to explain, but if you care about Hogwarts, if you want to see Voldemort finished, you've got to tell me anything you know about the diadem. She remained quite still, floating in midair, staring down at him, and a sense of hopelessness engulfed Harry. Of course, if she had known anything, she would have told Flitwick or Dumbledore, who had surely asked her the same question. He had shaken his head and made to turn away when she spoke in a low voice. I stole the diadem from my mother. You? You did what? I stole the diadem repeated Helena Ravenclaw in a whisper. I sought to make myself cleverer, more important than my mother. I ran away with it. He did not know how he had managed to gain her confidence and did not ask. He simply listened, hard, as she went on. My mother, they say, never admitted that the diadem was gone, but pretended that she had it still. She concealed her loss, my dreadful betrayal, even from the other founders of Hogwarts. Then my mother fell ill, fatally ill. In spite of my perfidy, she was desperate to see me one more time. She sent a man who had long loved me, though I spurned his advances, to find me. She knew that he would not rest until he had done so. Harry waited. She drew a deep breath and threw back her head. He tracked me to the forest where I was hiding. When I refused to return with him, he became violent. The Baron was always a hot-tempered man, furious at my refusal, jealous of my freedom. He stabbed me. The Baron? You mean the bloody Baron, yes, said the Grey Lady, and she lifted aside the cloak she wore to reveal a single dark wound in her white chest. When he saw what he had done, he was overcome with remorse. 
He took the weapon that had claimed my life and used it to kill himself. All these centuries later, he wears his chains as an act of penitence, as he should, she added bitterly. And, and the diadem? It remained where I had hidden it when I heard the baron blundering through the forest toward me, concealed inside a hollow tree. A hollow tree? repeated Harry. What tree? Where was this? A forest in Albania, a lonely place I thought was far beyond my mother's reach. Albania, repeated Harry. Sense was emerging miraculously from confusion, and now he understood why she was telling him what she had denied Dumbledore and Flitwick. You've already told someone this story, haven't you? Another student? She closed her eyes and nodded. I had no idea. He was flattering. He seemed to, to understand, to sympathize. Yes, Harry thought, Tom Riddle would certainly have understood Helena Ravenclaw's desire to possess fabulous objects to which she had little right. Well, you weren't the first person Riddle wormed things out of, Harry muttered. He could be charming when he wanted. So Voldemort had managed to wheedle the location of the lost diadem out of the Grey Lady. He had traveled to that far-flung forest and retrieved the diadem from its hiding place, perhaps as soon as he left Hogwarts, before he even started work at Borgin and Burke's. And wouldn't those secluded Albanian woods have seemed an excellent refuge when, so much later, Voldemort had needed a place to lie low, undisturbed, for ten long years? But the diadem, once it became his precious horcrux, had not been left in that lowly tree. No, the diadem had been returned secretly to its true home and Voldemort must have put it there. The night he asked for a job, said Harry, finishing his thought. I beg your pardon? He hid the diadem in the castle, the night he asked Dumbledore to let him teach, said Harry. Saying it out loud enabled him to make sense of it all. He must have hidden the diadem on his way up to or down from Dumbledore's office. But it was still worth trying to get the job. Then he might have got the chance to nick Gryffindor's sword as well. Thank you. Thanks. Harry left her floating there, looking utterly bewildered. As he rounded the corner back into the entrance hall, he checked his watch. It was five minutes until midnight, and though he now knew what the last Horcrux was, he was no closer to discovering where it was. Generations of students had failed to find the diadem. That suggested that it was not in Ravenclaw Tower, but if not there, where? What hiding place had Tom Riddle discovered inside Hogwarts Castle that he believed would remain secret forever? Lost in desperate speculation, Harry turned a corner, but he had taken only a few steps down the new corridor when the window to his left broke open with a deafening, shattering crash. As he leapt aside, a gigantic body flew in through the window and hit the opposite wall. Something large and furry detached itself, whimpering from the new arrival, and flung itself at Harry. Hagrid! Harry bellowed, fighting off Fang the boarhound's attentions as the enormous bearded figure clambered to his feet. What the- Harry! You're here! You're here! Hagrid stooped down, bestowed upon Harry a cursory and rib-cracking hug, then ran back to the shattered window. Good boy, Grawpy! He bellowed through the hole in the window. 
I'll see you in a moment, there's a good lad. Beyond Hagrid, out in the dark night, Harry saw bursts of light in the distance and heard a weird, keening scream. He looked down at his watch. It was midnight. The battle had begun. Blimey, Harry, panted Hagrid. This is it, eh? Time to fight? Hagrid, where have you come from? Heard you know who from up in our cave, said Hagrid grimly. Voice carried, didn't it? You got till midnight to gimme Potter. Knew you must be here. Knew what must be happening. Get down, Fang. So, we come to join in, me and Gropey and Fang. Smashed our way through the boundary by the forest. Gropey was carrying us, Fang and me. Told him to let me down at the castle. So, he shoved me through the window. Bless him. Not exactly what I meant, but... Where's Ron and Hermione? That, said Harry, is a really good question. Come on. They hurried together along the corridor, Fang lolloping beside them. Harry could hear movement through the corridors all around, running footsteps, shouts. Through the windows, he could see more flashes of light in the dark grounds. Where are we going? puffed Hagrid, pounding along at Harry's heels, making the floorboards quake. I don't know exactly said Harry, making another random turn. But Ron and Hermione must be around here somewhere. The first casualties of the battle were already strewn across the passage ahead. The two stone gargoyles that usually guarded the entrance to the staff room had been smashed apart by a jinx that had sailed through another broken window. Their remains stirred feebly on the floor, and as Harry leapt over one of their disembodied heads, it moaned faintly, Oh, don't mind me. I'll just lie here and crumble. Its ugly stone face made Harry think suddenly of the marble bust of Rowena Ravenclaw at Xenophilius's house, wearing that mad headdress, and then of the statue in Ravenclaw Tower with the stone diadem upon her white curls. And as he reached the end of the passage, the memory of a third stone effigy came back to him, that of an ugly old warlock, onto whose head Harry himself had placed a wig and a battered old tiara. The shock shot through Harry with a heat of fire whiskey, and he nearly stumbled. He knew at last where the Horcrux sat waiting for him. Tom Riddle, who confided in no one and operated alone, might have been arrogant enough to assume that he, and only he, had penetrated the deepest mysteries of Hogwarts Castle. Of course, Dumbledore and Flitwick those model pupils had never set foot in that particular place. But he, Harry, had strayed off the beaten track in his time at school. Here at last was a secret he and Voldemort knew that Dumbledore had never discovered. He was roused by Professor Sprout, who was thundering past, followed by Neville and half a dozen others, all of them wearing earmuffs and carrying what appeared to be large potted plants. Mandrakes! Neville bellowed at Harry over his shoulder as he ran. Going to lob them over the walls! They won't like this! Harry knew now where to go. He sped off with Hagrid and Fang galloping behind him. They passed portrait after portrait, and the painted figures raced alongside them, wizards and witches in ruffs and breeches, in armor and cloaks, cramming themselves into each other's canvases, screaming news from other parts of the castle. As they reached the end of this corridor, the whole castle shook, and Harry knew, as a gigantic vase blew off its plinth with explosive force, 
that it was in the grip of enchantments more sinister than those of the teachers and the order. It's all right, Fang, it's all right, yelled Hagrid, but the great boarhound had taken flight as slivers of china flew like shrapnel through the air, and Hagrid pounded off after the terrified dog, leaving Harry alone. He forged on through the trembling passages, his wand at the ready, and for the length of one corridor, the little painted knight, Sir Cadogan, rushed from painting to painting beside him, clanking along in his armor, screaming encouragement, his fat little pony cantering behind him. Braggots and rogues, dogs and scoundrels, drive them out, Harry Potter, see them off! Harry hurtled around a corner and found Fred and a small knot of students, including Lee Jordan and Hannah Abbott, standing beside another empty plinth, whose statue had concealed a secret passageway. Their wands were drawn, and they were listening at the concealed hole. Nice night for it, Fred shouted as the castle quaked again, and Harry sprinted by, elated and terrified in equal measure. Along yet another corridor he dashed, and then there were owls everywhere, and Mrs. Norris was hissing and trying to bat them with her paws, no doubt to return them to their proper place. Potter! Aberforth Dumbledore stood blocking the corridor ahead, his wand held ready. I've had hundreds of kids thundering through my pub, Potter. I know, we're evacuating, Harry said. Voldemort, attacking because they haven't handed you over. Yeah, said Aberforth. I'm not deaf. The whole of Hogsmeade heard him. And it never occurred to any of you to keep a few Slytherins hostage? There are kids of Death Eaters you've just sent to safety. Wouldn't it have been a bit smarter to keep them here? It wouldn't stop Voldemort, said Harry, and your brother would never have done it. Aberforth grunted and tore away in the opposite direction. Your brother would never have done it. Well, it was the truth, Harry thought, as he ran on again. Dumbledore, who had defended Snape for so long, would never have held students' ransom. And then he skidded around a final corner, and with a yell of mingled relief and fury, he saw them, Ron and Hermione, both with their arms full of large, curved, dirty yellow objects, Ron with a broomstick under his arm. Where the hell have you been? Harry shouted. Chamber of Secrets, said Ron. Chamber, what? said Harry, coming to an unsteady halt before them. It was Ron, all Ron's idea, said Hermione breathlessly. Wasn't it absolutely brilliant? There we were after you left, and I said to Ron, even if we find the other one, how are we going to get rid of it? We still hadn't got rid of the cup. And then he thought of it. The basilisk. What the? Something to get rid of Horcruxes, said Ron simply. Harry's eyes dropped to the objects clutched in Ron and Hermione's arms. Great curved fangs, torn, he now realized, from the skull of a dead basilisk. But how did you get in there? He asked, staring from the fangs to Ron. You need to speak Parseltongue. He did, whispered Hermione. Show him, Ron. Ron made a horrible, strangled, hissing noise. It's what you did to open the locket, he told Harry apologetically. I had to have a few goes to get it right, but... He shrugged modestly. We got there in the end. He was amazing, said Hermione. Amazing. So, Harry was struggling to keep up. So, so we're another Horcrux down, said Ron, and from under his jacket he pulled the mangled remains of Hufflepuff's cup. Hermione stabbed it, thought she should. 
She hasn't had the pleasure yet. Genius, yelled Harry. It was nothing, said Ron, though he looked delighted with himself. So what's new with you? As he said it, there was an explosion from overhead. All three of them looked up as dust fell from the ceiling and they heard a distant scream. I know what the diadem looks like and I know where it is, said Harry, talking fast. He hid it exactly where I hid my old potions book, where everyone's been hiding stuff for centuries. He thought he was the only one to find it. Come on. As the walls trembled again, he led the other two back through the concealed entrance and down the staircase into the room of requirement. It was empty except for three women. Ginny, Tonks, and an elderly witch wearing a moth-eaten hat, whom Harry recognized immediately as Neville's grandmother. Ah, oh, Potter, she said crisply, as if she had been waiting for him. You can tell us what's going on. Is everyone okay? said Ginny and Tonks together. As far as we know, said Harry, are there still people in the passage to the hogshead? He knew that the room would not be able to transform while there were still users inside it. I was the last to come through, said Mrs. Longbottom. I sealed it. I think it's unwise to leave it open now Aberforth has left his pub. Have you seen my grandson? He's fighting, said Harry. Naturally, said the old lady proudly. Excuse me, I must go and assist him. With surprising speed, she trotted off toward the stone steps. Harry looked at Tonks. I thought you were supposed to be with Teddy at your mother's. I couldn't stand not knowing. Tonks looked anguished. She'll look after him. Have you seen Remus? He was planning to lead a group of fighters into the grounds. Without another word, Tonks sped off. Ginny, said Harry, I'm sorry, but we need you to leave too. Just for a bit, then you can come back in. Ginny looked simply delighted to leave her sanctuary. And then you can come back in, he shouted after her as she ran up the steps after Tonks. You've got to come back in. Hang on a moment, said Ron sharply. We've forgotten someone. Who? asked Hermione. The house elves. They'll all be down in the kitchen, won't they? You mean we ought to get them fighting? asked Harry. No, said Ron seriously. I mean, we should tell them to get out. We don't want any more Dobbies, do we? We can't order them to die for us. There was a clatter as the basilisk fangs cascaded out of Hermione's arms. Running at Ron, she flung them around his neck and kissed him full on the mouth. Ron threw away the fangs and broomstick he was holding and responded with such enthusiasm that he lifted Hermione off her feet. Is this the moment? Harry asked weakly, and when nothing happened except that Ron and Hermione gripped each other still more firmly and swayed on the spot, he raised his voice. Oi! There's a war going on here! Ron and Hermione broke apart, their arms still around each other. I know, mate, said Ron, who looked as though he had recently been hit on the back of the head with a bludger. So, it's now or never, isn't it? Never mind that, what about the Horcrux? Harry shouted. Do you think you could just... Just hold it in until we've got the diadem. Yeah, right. Sorry, said Ron, and he and Hermione set about gathering up fangs, both pink in the face. It was clear, as the three of them stepped back into the corridor upstairs, that in the minutes that they had spent in the room of requirement, the situation within the castle had deteriorated severely. The walls and ceiling were shaking worse than ever. Dust filled the air, and through the nearest window, 
Harry saw bursts of green and red light so close to the foot of the castle that he knew the Death Eaters must be very near to entering the place. Looking down, Harry saw Grawp the giant meandering past, swinging what looked like a stone gargoyle torn from the roof and roaring his displeasure. Let's hope he steps on some of them, said Ron, as more screams echoed from close by. As long as it's not any of our lot, said a voice. Harry turned and saw Ginny and Tonks, both with their wands drawn at the next window, which was missing several panes. Even as he watched, Ginny sent a well-aimed jinx into a crowd of fighters below. Good girl, roared a figure running through the dust toward them, and Harry saw Aberforth again, his gray hair flying as he led a small group of students past. They look like they might be breaching the north battlements. They brought giants of their own. Have you seen Remus? Tonks called after him. He was dueling Dolohov, shouted Aberforth. Haven't seen him since. Tonks, said Ginny. Tonks, I'm sure he's okay. But Tonks had run off into the dust after Aberforth. Ginny turned, helpless to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. They'll be all right, said Harry, though he knew they were empty words. Ginny, we'll be back in a moment. Just keep out of the way. Keep safe. Come on, he said to Ron and Hermione and they ran back to the stretch of wall beyond which the Room of Requirement was waiting to do the bidding of the next entrant. I need the place where everything is hidden, Harry begged of it inside his head, and the door materialized on their third run past. The furor of the battle died the moment they crossed the threshold and closed the door behind them. All was silent. They were in a place the size of a cathedral with the appearance of a city its towering walls built of objects hidden by thousands of long-gone students. And he never realized anyone could get in, said Ron, his voice echoing in the silence. He thought he was the only one, said Harry. Too bad for him, I've had to hide stuff in my time. This way, he added. I think it's down here. He passed the stuffed troll and the vanishing cabinet Draco Malfoy had mended last year with such disastrous consequences, then hesitated, looking up and down aisles of junk. He could not remember where to go next. Hasio diadem, cried Hermione in desperation, but nothing flew through the air toward them. It seemed that, like the vault at Gringotts, the room would not yield its hidden objects that easily. Let's split up. Harry told the other two. Look for a stone bust of an old man wearing a wig and a tiara. It's standing on a cupboard and it's definitely somewhere near here. They sped off up adjacent aisles. Harry could hear the others' footsteps echoing through the towering piles of junk, of bottles, hats, crates, chairs, books, weapons, broomsticks, bats. Somewhere near here, Harry muttered to himself. Somewhere, somewhere. Deeper and deeper into the labyrinth he went, looking for objects he recognized from his one previous trip into the room. His breath was loud in his ears, and then his very soul seemed to shiver. There it was, right ahead, the blistered old cupboard in which he had hidden his old potions book, and on top of it, the pockmarked stone warlock wearing a dusty old wig and what looked like an ancient discolored tiara. He had already stretched out his hand, though he remained ten feet away, when a voice behind him said, Hold it, Potter. He skidded to a halt and turned around. Crab and Goyle were standing behind him, shoulder to shoulder, wands pointing right at Harry. 
Through the small space between their jeering faces, he saw Draco Malfoy. That's my wand you're holding, Potter, said Malfoy, pointing his own through the gap between Crab and Goyle. Not anymore, panted Harry, tightening his grip on the Hawthorne wand. Winners, keepers, Malfoy, who's lent you theirs? My mother, said Draco. Harry laughed, though there was nothing very humorous about the situation. He could not hear Ron or Hermione anymore. They seemed to have run out of earshot, searching for the diadem. So how come you three aren't with Voldemort? asked Harry. We're gonna be rewarded, said Crab. His voice was surprisingly soft for such an enormous person. Harry had hardly ever heard him speak before. Crab was smiling like a small child promised a large bag of sweets. We're young back, Potter. We decided not to go, decided to bring you to him. Good plan, said Harry in mock admiration. He could not believe that he was this close and was going to be thwarted by Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle. He began edging slowly backward toward the place where the Horcrux sat, lopsided upon the bust. If he could just get his hands on it before the fight broke out. So, how did you get in here? he asked, trying to distract them. I virtually lived in the room of hidden things all last year, said Malfoy, his voice brittle. I know how to get in. We was hiding in the corridor outside, grunted Goyle. We can do disillusion charms now, and then... His face split into a gormless grin. You turned up right in front of us and said you was looking for a diadem. What's a diadem? Harry! Ron's voice echoed suddenly from the other side of the wall to Harry's right. Are you talking to someone? With a whip-like movement, Crab pointed his wand at the fifty-foot mountain of old furniture, of broken trunks, of old books and robes and unidentifiable junk, and shouted, Descendo! The wall began to totter, then the top third crumbled into the aisle next door where Ron stood. Ron! Harry bellowed, as somewhere out of sight Hermione screamed, and Harry heard innumerable objects crashing to the floor on the other side of the destabilized wall. He pointed his wand at the rampart, cried, Finite! And it steadied. No! shouted Malfoy, staying Crab's arm, as the latter made to repeat his spell. If you wreck the room, you might bury this diadem thing. What's that matter? said Crab, tugging himself free. It's Potter the Dark Lord wants. Who cares about the diadem? Potter came in here to get it said Malfoy with ill-disguised impatience at the slow-wittedness of his colleagues. So that must mean... Must mean? Crab turned on Malfoy with undisguised ferocity. Who cares what you think? I don't take your orders no more, Draco. You and your dad are finished. Harry! shouted Ron again from the other side of the junk wall. What's going on? Harry! mimicked Crab. What's going... No! Potter! Crucio! Harry had lunged for the tiara. Crab's curse missed him but hit the stone bust, which flew into the air. The diadem soared upward and then dropped out of sight in the mass of objects on which the bust had rested. Stop! Malfoy shouted at Crab, his voice echoing through the enormous room. The Dark Lord wants him alive! So, I'm not killing him, am I? yelled Crab, throwing off Malfoy's restraining arm. But if I can, I will. The Dark Lord wants him dead anyway. 
What's the diff? A jet of scarlet light shot past Harry by inches. Hermione had run around the corner behind him and sent a stunning spell straight at Crab's head. It only missed because Malfoy pulled him out of the way. It's that mudblood! Avada Kedavra! Harry saw Hermione dive aside, and his fury that Crab had aimed to kill wiped all else from his mind. He shot a stunning spell at Crab, who lurched out of the way, knocking Malfoy's wand out of his hand. It rolled out of sight beneath a mountain of broken furniture and boxes. Don't kill him! Don't kill him! Malfoy yelled at Crab and Goyle, who were both aiming at Harry. Their split-seconds hesitation was all Harry needed. Expelliarmus! Goyle's wand flew out of his hand and disappeared into the bulwark of objects beside him. Goyle leapt foolishly on the spot, trying to retrieve it. Malfoy jumped out of range of Hermione's second stunning spell, and Ron, appearing suddenly at the end of the aisle, shot a full body-bind curse at Crab, which narrowly missed. Crab wheeled around and screamed, Avada Kedavra! Again, Ron leapt out of sight to avoid the jet of green light. The wandless Malfoy cowered behind a three-legged wardrobe as Hermione charged toward them, hitting Goyle with a stunning spell as she came. It's somewhere here! Harry yelled at her, pointing at the pile of junk into which the old tiara had fallen. Look for it while I go and help Ron. Harry! She screamed. A roaring, billowing noise behind him gave him a moment's warning. He turned and saw both Ron and Crab running as hard as they could up the aisle toward them. Like it hot, scum? Roared Crab as he ran. But he seemed to have no control over what he had done. Flames of abnormal size were pursuing them, licking up the sides of the junk bulwarks, which were crumbling to soot at their touch. Aguamenti! Harry bawled, but the jet of water that soared from the tip of his wand evaporated in the air. Run! Malfoy grabbed the stunned Goyle and dragged him along. Crab outstripped all of them, now looking terrified. Harry, Ron, and Hermione pelted along in his wake, and the fire pursued them. It was not normal fire. Crab had used a curse of which Harry had no knowledge. As they turned a corner, the flames chased them as though they were alive, sentient, intent upon killing them. Now the fire was mutating, forming a gigantic pack of fiery beasts. Flaming serpents, chimeras, and dragons rose and fell and rose again, and the detritus of centuries on which they were feeding was thrown up in the air into their fanged mouths, tossed high on clawed feet before being consumed by the inferno. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle had vanished from view. Harry, Ron, and Hermione stopped dead. The fiery monsters were circling them, drawing closer and closer, claws and horns and tails lashed and the heat was solid as a wall around them. What can we do? Hermione screamed over the deafening roars of the fire. What can we do? Here. Harry seized a pair of heavy-looking broomsticks from the nearest pile of junk and threw one to Ron, who pulled Hermione onto it behind him. Harry swung his leg over the second broom and, with hard kicks to the ground, they soared up into the air, missing by feet the horned beak of a flaming raptor that snapped its jaws at them. The smoke and heat were becoming overwhelming. Below them, the cursed fire was consuming the contraband of generations of hunted students, the guilty outcomes of a thousand banned experiments, the secrets of the countless souls who had sought refuge in the room. Harry could not see a trace of Malfoy, Crab, or Goyle anywhere. He swooped as low as he dared over the marauding monsters of flame to try to find them, 
but there was nothing but fire. What a terrible way to die. He had never wanted this. Harry, let's get out, let's get out, bellowed Ron, though it was impossible to see where the door was through the black smoke. And then Harry heard a thin, piteous human scream from amidst the terrible commotion, the thunder of devouring flame. It's too dangerous, Ron yelled, but Harry wheeled in the air. His glasses giving his eyes some small protection from the smoke, he raked the firestorm below, seeking a sign of life, a limb or a face that was not yet charred like wood. And he saw them, Malfoy with his arms around the unconscious Goyle, the pair of them perched on a fragile tower of charred desks, and Harry dived. Malfoy saw him coming and raised one arm, but even as Harry grasped it, he knew at once that it was no good. Goyle was too heavy, and Malfoy's hand, covered in sweat, slid instantly out of Harry's. If we die for them, I'll kill you, Harry, roared Ron's voice, and as a great flaming chimera bore down upon them, he and Hermione dragged Goyle onto their broom and rose, rolling and pitching into the air once more, as Malfoy clambered up behind Harry. The door! Get to the door! The door! screamed Malfoy in Harry's ear, and Harry sped up, following Ron, Hermione, and Goyle through the billowing black smoke, hardly able to breathe. And all around them, the last few objects unburned by the devouring flames were flung into the air, as the creatures of the cursed fire cast them high in celebration. Cups and shields, a sparkling necklace, and an old, discolored tiara. What are you doing? What are you doing? The door's that way! screamed Malfoy, but Harry made a hairpin swerve and dived. The diadem seemed to fall in slow motion, turning and glittering as it dropped toward the maw of a yawning serpent, and then he had it, caught it around his wrist. Harry swerved again as the serpent lunged at him. He soared upward and straight toward the place where, he prayed, the door stood open. Ron, Hermione, and Goyle had vanished. Malfoy was screaming and holding Harry so tightly it hurt. Then, through the smoke, Harry saw a rectangular patch on the wall and steered the broom at it. And moments later, clean air filled his lungs, and they collided with the wall in the corridor beyond. Malfoy fell off the broom and lay face down, gasping, coughing, and retching. Harry rolled over and sat up. The door to the room of requirement had vanished, and Ron and Hermione sat panting on the floor beside Goyle, who was still unconscious. Crab! choked Malfoy as soon as he could speak. Crab! He's dead, said Ron harshly. There was silence, apart from panting and coughing. Then a number of huge bangs shook the castle, and a great cavalcade of transparent figures galloped past on horses, their heads screaming with bloodlust under their arms. Harry staggered to his feet when the headless hunt had passed and looked around. The battle was still going on all around him. He could hear more screams than those of the retreating ghosts. Panic flared within him. Where's Ginny? he said sharply. She was here. She was supposed to be going back into the room of requirement. Blimey, do you reckon it'll still work after that fire? Asked Ron, but he too got to his feet, rubbing his chest and looking left and right. Shall we split up and look? No, said Hermione, getting to her feet too. Malfoy and Goyle remained slumped hopelessly on the corridor floor. Neither of them had wands. Let's stick together. I say we go. Harry, what's that on your arm? What? Oh, yeah. He pulled the diadem from his wrist and held it up. 
It was still hot, blackened with soot, but as he looked at it closely, he was just able to make out the tiny words etched upon it. Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. A blood-like substance, dark and tarry, seemed to be leaking from the diadem. Suddenly Harry felt the thing vibrate violently, then break apart in his hands, and as it did so, he thought he heard the faintest, most distant scream of pain, echoing not from the grounds or the castle, but from the thing that had just fragmented in his fingers. It must have been fiendfire, whimpered Hermione, her eyes on the broken pieces. Sorry? Fiendfire. Cursed fire. It's one of the substances that destroy Horcruxes. But I would never, ever have dared use it. It's so dangerous. How did Crab know how to... Must have learned from the Carrows, said Harry grimly. Shame he wasn't concentrating when they mentioned how to stop it, really, said Ron, whose hair, like Hermione's, was singed and whose face was blackened. If he hadn't tried to kill us all, I'd be quite sorry he was dead. But don't you realize, whispered Hermione, this means if we can just get the snake. But she broke off as yells and shouts and the unmistakable noises of dueling filled the corridor. Harry looked around and his heart seemed to fail. Death Eaters had penetrated Hogwarts. Fred and Percy had just backed into view, both of them dueling masked and hooded men. Harry, Ron, and Hermione ran forward to help. Jets of light flew in every direction, and the man dueling Percy backed off fast. Then his hood slipped, and they saw the high forehead and streaked hair. Hello, Minister, bellowed Percy, sending a neat jinx straight at thickness, who dropped his wand and clawed at the front of his robes, apparently in awful discomfort. Did I mention I'm resigning? You're joking, Perse, shouted Fred as the Death Eater he was battling collapsed under the weight of three separate stunning spells. Thickness had fallen to the ground with tiny spikes erupting all over him. He seemed to be turning into some form of sea urchin. Fred looked at Percy with glee. You actually are joking, Perse. I don't think I've heard you joke since you were... The air exploded. They had been grouped together, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Fred, and Percy, the two Death Eaters at their feet, one stunned, the other transfigured. And in that fragment of a moment, when danger seemed temporarily at bay, the world was rent apart. Harry felt himself flying through the air, and all he could do was hold as tightly as possible to that thin stick of wood that was his one and only weapon, and shield his head in his arms. He heard the screams and yells of his companions without a hope of knowing what had happened to them. And then the world resolved itself into pain and semi-darkness. He was half buried in the wreckage of a corridor that had been subjected to a terrible attack. Cold air told him that the side of the castle had been blown away, and hot stickiness on his cheek told him that he was bleeding copiously. Then he heard a terrible cry that pulled at his insides, that expressed agony of a kind neither flame nor curse could cause, and he stood up, swaying, more frightened than he had been that day, more frightened, perhaps, than he had been in his life and Hermione was struggling to her feet in the wreckage, and three red-headed men were grouped on the ground where the wall had blasted apart. Harry grabbed Hermione's hand as they staggered and stumbled over stone and wood. No! 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 Someone was shouting. No! Fred! No! And Percy was shaking his brother, and Ron was kneeling beside them, and Fred's eyes stared without seeing.
the ghost of his last laugh still etched upon his face.